Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called Contract Killings and Its Impact in Civil Society, Avenues for Monitoring and Responding. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming here today. My name is Ana Paula Oliveira and I'm an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I've been working uh, with our Assassination Witness campaign since its launch and contributing to the broader GI research on assassination. So first of all, I want to say how excited it is to be here and to have this panel at the OC24 and introduce this discussion that for us at the Global Initiative is so relevant and extremely urgent. Over the years, the Global Initiative has been studying and documenting the pervasive impacts of the use of assassinations by organized crime. Criminal groups are indiscriminated in, in who they target and they spare no efforts in achieving their political, economic, criminal, and sometimes even personal interests using violence. And assassinations have not only been constrained to the, to the gang turfs and, and, and organized crime groups, but also transboundary and having an extremely detrimental impact in, in civil society. Also undermining institutions, undermining the rule of law, and particularly where fragile governance system exists. And in most of the cases, what we notice is that the common denominator is impunity. So perpetrators are rarely being brought to justice. And SBC is a phenomenon that is in a crisis and on scale um, rising. So to contribute to better responses to this global issue, the Global Initiative has developed a flagship initiative uh, called Assassination Witness that monitors the phenomenon of target killings, its impact in civil society actors, advocates for better responses to assassinations and pay homage to the victims of these horrendous crimes through a varied range of activities such as data collections that we're gonna see in the panel later today, um, podcasts, webinars, publication of reports and stories, the GI promotes debate around the assassination crisis, maps existing responses and advocates for improvement on, on the lives of that are at risk. So in 2020, as I mentioned, we launched um, a book, The Faces of Assassination, bearing witness to the victims of organized crime, a collection of 50 stories of people who advocacy and stance against illicit economics led to their killing. And as part of the Assassination Witness Program in 2021, the GI launched a unique tool, the Global Assassination Monitor, which is a database that tracks incidents of target killings globally. And that will be presented today by my colleague Nina Kaiser, who will introduce shortly. So in this event today, we're going to discuss the role of organized crime behind um, contract killings, present the tool, the Global Assassination Monitor, discuss the, the academic uh, research on this and some community responses as well as a way moving forward. So to start off and introduce the Global Assassination Monitor, I have a pleasure to introduce um, Nina Kaiser who's been developing the Global Assassination Monitor, um, at the GI Talk tool. And Nina is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative. Her whole focus on enhancing the quantitative evidence base of organized crime. She's been involved in several data-led initiatives and flagship initiatives at the GI, including the Organized Crime Index and the IU Fishing Index since 2017. So Nina, the floor is yours. Hi, Anna. Thank you. Um, so as Anna just mentioned, my name is Nina Kaiser. I'm senior analyst at the Global Initiative. And together with Anya, uh, uh, Anna, who is hosting this panel, I'm working on the assassination witness campaign at the GI, um, more specifically the assassination monitor, which I will present here. Um, the global assassination monitor was launched in 2021 um, and tracks contract killings globally and currently covers data for 2019 and 2020. For the time period, the total database includes more than 2,700 reported cases overall. The database is publicly available from our Global Monitor website, along with the launch report, Killing in Silence. So what is the purpose of the monitor? Um, by monitoring the phenomenon on a regular basis, that is recording cases of contract killings over time, 
The project aims to highlight the sheer magnitude of contract killings globally and within specific regions and countries, and to draw attention to the role of organized crime in these killings. By collecting and analyzing these data, the goal of the project is to promote evidence-based research on the subject and eventually to guide policymaking. Um, the data collection of the, uh, for the Global Monitor builds on previous and ongoing work on South Africa, which was started by Kim Thomas and Mark Shaw at the Global Initiative um, in 2015. Currently, the South Africa data includes 1,971 cases and covers 2000 to 2021. And one important finding um, the research highlighted was important is, or is the importance of the taxi industry contract killings and the role it plays in perpetuating um, high levels of contract killings in South Africa. Um, the methodology used for South Africa was adjusted for the Global Monitor um, to allow, allow for an expansion of data collection to a global scale. So before we dive into the findings of the data for 2019 and 2020, what methodology did we use for data collection? First, how did we select relevant cases? The database tracks assassinations that fall into the category of targeted contract killings. This includes actual, attempted and planned lethal attacks on individuals or small groups of individuals. For cases to be included in the database, they need to meet two criteria. First, they need to be targeted killings. This means that specific individuals are targeted for personal reasons, such as identity, position or the work they do, and does not include attacks on random members of groups. Second, they need to be contract killings. These are cases where a third party is contracted to conduct the actual attempted or planned murder. At times, this might involve the transfer of money, but at other times, the contract killer might receive other forms of benefit, including personal favors, political favors, or change in status in a criminal gang. As you can see, the definition does not focus on one specific motive or a specific target group. Second, what information did we include in the database? The database includes more than 25 variables, which fall broadly under six categories. For each, each recorded case, the database includes the date of the event, the location of the event, information about the victim and perpetrator, such as names, nationalities, gender, and the groups, category groups they belong to, the dynamics of violence or dynamics of violence, including method, motive, and um, amount of money exchanged, if the information were available in the repos. Lastly, information about the source is recorded to ensure that each case in the database is verifiable. The data draw on news reports. This means that the information provided in the database reflects what is reported on an individual case. Most news sources were accessed via LexisNexis using a search string, and relevant information from articles um, was extracted from articles and input in the database. The database then went through various rounds of cleaning and verification, the different people where individual cases were checked for their accuracy. Um, the database itself consists of two layers. So the first layer is a global database, which draws on global and regional news sources, which were selected based on the global coverage and reputation. The global database for 2019 and 2020 includes 766 cases spread across 84 countries. Um, drawing on the same news sources across countries, the global database provides a foundation for cross-regional comparisons of contract killings for our purposes. The second layer or second part is a national database, which for 10 countries only um, across, across different parts of the world, namely Brazil, Colombia, El Salvador, and Mexico, India, Pakistan, and the Philippines, as well as Mozambique, Kenya, and South Africa, adds national sources to the global and regional sources. So there, the analysis allows to dive deeper into the dynamics of contract killings within the individual countries. Um, as you can see in the previous slide, adding national sources increased the numbers of cases sharply. Um, so whereas we had 766 in the global database, we have um, a lot more just for the 10 countries in the national database. Um, we found that while reporting rates vary across countries, on average, only 15% 15 of cases were picked up in global and regional news. And these were, a lot of them were higher profile cases. The results presented here draw on data from the global database based on, based on global and regional sources. Um, if you're interested in further analysis or the national database, they can be found on the Global Assassination Monitor website. Um, the data here suggests that in 2019 and 2020, most cases took place in the Americas, which accounted for 37% of all recorded cases, followed by Asia with 33%, Africa with 24%, and Europe with 6%. Oceania had only one recorded case during that time period. 
Globally, main targets were members of local communities, accounting for nearly 30% of all cases. This includes activists, community leaders, scholars, as well as cultural workers, among others. The main motive was political, which includes killings that aim to influence a political outcome. These cases can be linked to political competition and rivalry, but also the killing of a political activist, for example. The database also recorded the main methods and weapons used. While information on exact weapons was sparse, nearly three quarters of our victims were killed with the use of firearms. This is in line with previous research on contract killings, which also found that most killings are conducted using firearms. Our research also found that most victims were male. Um, of all case, of, of cases, 85% were male, while 9% were reportedly female. So while this is only a snapshot of the results, I'm gonna go into um, more regional analysis. First, we found that assassinations cluster geographically, not just globally, but also within the regions. So if you break it down and look at the different regions and countries, you can see the clusters. For example, while most cases took place in the Americas, within the Americas, they are highly concentrated. Colombia and Mexico alone accounted for 74% of our killings in the region, in our database. Similarly, in Africa, two countries had the highest numbers. Um, with Somalia accounting for 33% of targeted killings and Nigeria for 12%. We also found that some target groups were more vulnerable than others, but the type of target group differed from region to region. While members of local communities, such as activists, community leaders, and members of indigenous communities, among others, were the main target group globally, this is driven largely by experience in the Americas. In other parts of the world, such as Africa and Asia, those involved in political governance, such as politicians, public officials, were most vulnerable to becoming targets of assassinations. Third, we found that political motives drive most contract killings, not just globally, but also across the different regions. However, as you can see on the graph, um, in the Americas, organized crime-related motives, which includes, for example, the targeting of people because of extortion payments or fighting between gangs over illicit supply chains, played an almost equally important role. Fourth, our research also found that the main weapons used were firearms, as I've mentioned earlier. Yet again, the findings vary across regions. In the Americas, nearly 90% of cases involve firearms, whereas in Africa, the figure was just above 50%. Explosive devices, on the other hand, played a much more prominent role in Africa and Asia than they did in the Americas. Um, this is li linking this to recent studies by the GI. Um, they've highlighted a close link between the illicit arms trade and the availability of firearms, which might in turn feed into higher numbers of contract killings. Lastly, in the majority of cases, the identity of the perpetrators was not recorded. Anna has mentioned previous high levels of impunity, which this could be linked to, um, or could be one of the reasons, um, but also professionalism of killers and obviously a lack of follow-up on some cases in terms of reporting. Um, since the time period we've recorded is quite recent. Um, but for cases where the perpetrators were reported, most of them were either members of armed groups involved in illicit activities or organized crime groups. Um, so now moving on to some of the recommendations that emerged from our research. First, perpetrators and masterminds enjoy a high level of impunity in many locations. Strengthening investigatory and judiciary capacities is key to tackling assassinations. Second, some research indicates a link between the illicit firearms trade, firearms availability, and contract killings. However, a better understanding and research into these links are needed. Third, respond to specific assassinations clusters and dismantle illicit markets that nurture a culture of contract killings. Fourth, most states do not collect data on contract killings. To better understand the dynamics of assassinations and to de develop preventive measures, data collection assassinations need to be improved and enhanced so that obviously we're relying on media reporting, which has its own limitations. Um, having state data available as well would greatly enhance, um, enhance insights into the dynamics of contract killings. Fifth, enhance security and community and resilience by providing protection to those most vulnerable to contract killings. Thank you for listening to our presentation. If you'd like more details about the Global Assassination Monitor, please visit our website. The website allows you to download our data as well as to visualize, um, to visualize the data along different indicators. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to send me an email. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nina. Thank you for presenting the Global Monitor, this incredible tool that the GI is developing. So um, if I can turn now to Mohammed, who has been 
one of the authors contributing to the research on contract killings. Dr. Mohamed Herman is a senior lecturer in criminology in the School of Social Science at the Birmingham City University. He has published extensively in the research area of serious and organized crime. He has other research interests, including social inequality, criminal exploitation, and serious violence. And Dr. Mohamed Ahmed is a GI Network member, and he has been doing an extensive research on contract killings and will give his presentation now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anna, for the introduction. Hello, everybody, and welcome to my presentation. It's not as vibrant and colorful as Nina's, and given that it's quite academic, hopefully I won't bore you all too much. Having said that, I think it's important sometimes to consider some of the academic work that's already been conducted in relation to contract killings, murder for hire, and um, other euphemisms that are often associated with this lethal extreme form of violence. Um, in terms of my own work, uh, Anna just briefly mentioned, um, the starting point for the research that I've carried out over a, a period of several years in relation to contract killings uh, takes me back to 2015. And in 2015, I um, participated and co-authored in a peer-reviewed publication based on an article that was published a year before in 2014. And this article in 2014, what you see on the screen, is an exploratory study of British shipment between the period of 1974 and 2013. And that particular time, it was a pioneering study because what it allowed um, for us to understand, especially within the academic arena, is this demographical explanation about contract killers and key information about who they were, the nature and extent of their killings and so on and so forth. And after this particular publication, I was quite interested and fascinated behind the psychological aspects or some of the psychological aspects of contract killers, specifically the mental process that an individual needs to go through in order to carry out a hit, uh, to successfully execute it and to then be able to manage everything that comes with killing a person thereafter. And um, one of the pieces of work that I came across when conducting a literature review, although there wasn't much to uh, go by to begin with, was a piece of work that was conducted by an American scholar back in 1981. And this individual, Ken Levi, considered um, professional murderers, i.e. hitmen, and essentially he carried out a piece of work that explored the deviant management of one particular hitman who conducted over 30 killings. And that for me was quite fascinating because what I tried to do soon after uh, was, was essentially replicate his study, but within the British context. And the title of the article that you see, which I co-authored back in 2015, is quite deceptive as it may come across for some viewers as a step-by-step -step guide, a tutorial on how to become a hitman. And that's not the case by norms at all. Rather, the aim of the article was to establish through several key case studies, as well as a biographical account of how certain individuals who have committed contract killings in the UK were able to neutralize their behavior by dehumanizing and depersonalizing their targets as objects. So essentially they objectified a person and they did this in order to, uh, to kind of execute a hit and to also get paid for it. So there was a transactional element there as well. So there was a lot of sociological play in the work that um, I was able to do um, in, the, in this particular article and it received some traction over a period of time. In fact, he made news um, across the world. And this was picked up also by the American magazine, Time magazine, who essentially were able to offer a, a, a journalistic accounts and understanding based on the findings that contract killers for the most part are able to successfully compartmentalize not only their feelings prior to killing an individual, but what they do after is equally important. And um, just, just, to, just to consider some work outside of the work that 
I, I've done. These were some of the um, notable studies that have been published in English that I was able to draw upon when conducting a literature review of contract killers. And the, the first bullet point uh, essentially is the work of Azugi Biancostello, and they explored one specific case whereby a body that they were able to investigate received a gunshot wound to the head and was found in wooded area in mid-September 1983. So it's going back over 40 years now. And it was um, wrapped with approximately 20 layers of plastic garbage bags and rope. And it was one of many killings that they considered later on, whereby the victim's bodies were frozen, which forensically made it problematic to establish when the victim was killed, as well as other identifiers that would help police investigation. And that kind of essentially offered an understanding that the hitman in this particular case was quite mindful and conscious of um, police scrutiny and, and essentially employed a unique detection skill so as to be able to evade criminal justice. And the second and third bullet point, the second being um, American work that's been conducted in conjunction with the FBI Homicide Working Group, which consists of professionals and scholars. The work of Black and Cravens within the Homicide Working Group, again, they were able to, similarly to that of uh, McIntyre et al., the first publication that I showed, they also offered a demographic understanding of contract killers, but they took it a step further. And what they did in their murder for hire analysis is offer a script analysis and script analysis is extremely important and quite crucial in criminological research, especially administrative criminology, because what script analysis allows researchers to do, as well as criminal investigators, is to um, systematically investigate the entire crime commission process, including actions taken before, during, and after a crime has been commissioned. As a result, Black and Cravens considered the contracting, the plotting, and other aspects that are crucial and extremely important for those involved in contracted assassinations. And, and the last two points, oh, sorry, sorry um, point number three and point number four, um, research pieces from Australia and the US respectively, again, took a um, typology-based understanding of contract killers, quite similar to the work of McIntyre et al. And they were able to point out the nature and extent as well as some of the meanings that are associated with contract killings. And here, what they were able to do was differentiate the different types of contract killers, those that were involved in organized crime, those that operated on a freelance basis, and those that were essentially uh, in the middle, often um, taking the role of a freelance assassin, and in other cases, operating on behalf of an organized crime group, and the latter being part of other organized crime groups. And that, for me, was quite uh, interesting, because what that displayed was the disorganized nature of organized crime, the very nature of how some organized crime groups are more than happy, willing, and prepared to use an external source that they have very little knowledge about in some cases, whereas in other cases, they had extensive understanding about the perpetrator. And that for me was um, extremely interesting to understand that organized crime is not this kind of hierarchical structural thing that we tend to often consume in popular culture and media. Rather, it can be quite volatile, nebulous and hazy at the best of times, even at the higher echelon. And finally, the point by Cameron, uh, 2013, who considered the economics of contract killing within the British context, and he argued that there's not much money to be made by killing people. And this was one of the things that I was able to also identify and establish in my research, that the average price for a contract killing in the UK is £15,180. And that's you know, a very low sum in comparison to the cost of life. And this is quite synonymous with other work that's been carried out, which offers the understanding that killing an individual in terms of risks and rewards, there's a massive disparity. It's very 
it's not I, it's not necessarily a rewarding endeavor for the most part, especially in the UK, whereby the murder clear up rate is roughly between 92 to 94% and has been consistent for the past 10 years. So it's a case of if you are engaged in um, lethal violence, the chances of you being apprehended are relatively high. The literature beyond 2015, and this is where it gets quite interesting because after the uh, 2014 study of the British hitman, what it essentially did was it allowed other researchers to consider contract killings within certain locations uh, across the world. And an interesting piece for me was the work of Mark Shaw, who's actually the director of the Global Initiative, as well as um, his, his colleague, Luke Skywalker. What a name. Um, they were both able to consider contract killings within the context of South Africa, whereby they are known as hammermen. And hammermen are essentially this proxy between uh, the organized crime aspect of South Africa and the street level uh, criminal aspects of South Africa, specifically in the major city areas. And what, what Shaw and Skywalker were essentially arguing was that there's not this, you know, professional um, master uh, squeaky clean form of assassinations that take place in South Africa. Uh, rather, it's this ambiguous and uh, um, nebulous and hazy position that certain individuals occupy within local gangs and gang culture. And in some cases, the understanding of contract killings in that part of the world is heavily politicized. In addition to that, the work of Bolan et al. Uh, 2016 comes back to the UK, actually within this institution where I'm speaking from, and they were able to consider the importance of space in relation to uh, executions and assassinations that would take place, which have the hallmarks and the descriptions of a contract killer. And they argue that space is fundamental for any power of exercise, more so for killings, because often the perpetrator needs to be prepared and comfortable in order to execute in a place whereby they have some control over so as to be able to evade uh, the police. And, and, and the final um, piece of work that, that's on the slide, which is the most recent one, is by Decorte and Clemens. And they, again, like the um, FBI homicide working group, take a crime script analysis into six cases of contract hits that have taken place recently in the Netherlands. And they, um, um, with cooperation with police from the Netherlands, were able to identify key stages uh, in relation to contract assassinations, which involved the requirements, facilitators, modus operandi, as well as other uh, preparatory actions. And they considered the role of technology being uh, an, an essential aspect when it comes to hits, whereby individuals um, have been able to secure mobile phones uh, that, that, that are untraceable for the most part that are available to purchase legitimately as well. So they were able to identify this kind of blur between how the legitimate world in some cases have been able to foster and help contract assassinations, unknowingly that is. And to move on, I suppose, uh, with the theme of literature beyond 2015, the examples that I'll show now, again, is based on the work that I've done, you know, in, in, in the past seven years or so. And I've been able to conduct some research which explores the collective violence approach uh, with, with motorcycle gangs. They don't like to be refer to motorcycle gangs rather they like to be known as motorcycle clubs but this kind of collective understanding and identity that they have traverses and and, and, and permeates within the context of violence and in some cases lethal violence and this is a piece of work that I was able to carry out with um, a colleague he actually is an extension of my PhD research that explores the notion of uh, contract assassinations within uh, outlaw motorcycle clubs like the Hells Angels and other uh, gangs like the Bandidos, Outlaws, and the Pagans. Moving on for this, 
a front cover of my book, but within the book, there are two cases, this being the first, whereby I take a global understanding of contract killing, of how certain individuals that have been identified as hitmen have been prosecuted as, uh, because of their contract killings. There's this, globali there's this globalized understanding of how some of their activities that have taken place within a localized territory have subsequently ended up becoming part of a global assassination. Uh, the second being the murder of Richard Deacon, who was a businessman who was gunned down in his house in 2010. And again, this is another case that has um, connections with organized crime, the illegal drugs landscape, the firearms landscape, and ultimately the death of an individual that was committed by a person who had extensive knowledge and experience with firearms. And, and, and in essence, what this kind of highlights and reinforces within the context of the UK, that is for the most part, that most hits that are carried out tend to be carried out with firearms. And this is of extreme interest because we tend to pride ourselves here in the UK of having some of the tightest and strictest gun control laws in the world. But the reality of the matter is most of the hits that have taken place have been um, by the use of a gun. Uh, in addition to this, I've, I've, I've carried out more research that focuses on the collective uh, violence aspect of outlaw bike clubs and the, and the lethal aspects of this being contract killings. Um, more recently, I published in uh, an organized crime journal with colleagues from the US and Scotland, looking at criminal enforcement as an alternative form of criminal justice. Uh, this kind of understanding that certain individuals within the underworld labor market for the most part have a thirst and an appetite, a penchant for violence um, and are more than happy and prepared to take on a person's debt um, and in doing so enforce that debt in a way which in some cases involves lethal violence. Most of the research that I've conducted, quite similar to the work of the Global Initiative, the stuff that Nina mentioned uh, is case-based research. And case-based researches are extremely important because what they do is they allow you to attain a reliable understanding of a particular incident that has taken place. Some of my work has considered and explored those that engage in contract killings and their links to criminal organizations like the Hells Angels, for instance. Some cases have international dimensions, a global aspect, and that's something um, that, that I've been moving forward in terms of research that I'm doing at the moment, which is the fact that crime, uh, serious crimes are no longer located in fixed terrain, rather they're manifested as a result of local and global networks of opportunities. And contract killings, a, a form of lethal enforcement is, is an alternative form of criminal justice that individuals tend to employ so as to be able to generate, maintain and advance a criminal enterprise or an endeavor. And this extreme end of violent practice is, is something that's not localized, rather it has global implications within the context of the social landscape as well as the political landscape. So to conclude, the future of contract killing research, something that I'm extremely interested in, and if you do have any questions, please feel free to get in touch with me. Um, you'll be able to find my details online. Future academic research, I feel as though, could benefit from a rich blend of qualitative and quantitative research. And that way we can get the best of both worlds. Academic research, I feel as though, could also benefit from police data and other recorded information from legitimate sources. This is one of the stumbling blocks that I find when it comes to doing research here in the UK. The information that we get from law enforcement tends to be um, very generic and abstract and therefore a lot of the, the the stuff that you can even get through freedom of information requests tends to be redacted some studies have touched upon the political and social dimensions of contract killings but comparatively there is very little empirical work so it would be interesting to connect with scholars practitioners and academics around the world to do comparative work and research on contract killings in relation to the crime terror nexus could offer another perspective of the symbiotic relationship between organized crime and terrorism. So, or what, you know, what one of our neighboring islands, if that's, that's correct to say, is the Republic of Ireland. And the Republic of Ireland has its rich history 
in relation to organized crime, contra assassinations, but a lot of their organized criminality is um, tied within the political dimensions, especially the IRA, uh, the paramilitary slash terrorist organization, uh, often, uh, often responsible for um, terrorist-related activities, but also connected to organized crime. So looking at that symbiotic relationship could offer an alternative understanding of contract killing too. A few references, and I think that's me done. Thank you so much, Mohammed, for presenting the important work that Academia has been doing in creating definitions um, for contract killings, understanding the profile of hitmen, understanding the role of organized crime, and in fact, contributing to a better understanding of the what we call clusters of um, assassinations. And, and now that both speakers uh, told us a little bit more about the need to better understand these clusters, the need the, the need to better tackle impunity and the lack of responses to contract killings in the end. Um, I'm happy to introduce my colleague, uh, Felipe Botero Escobar, who will um, build upon on this um, previous research. And um, Felipe is the head of Colombia programs at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. He leads the implementation of strategies to strengthen community resilience to organized crime and also working on crime prevention in Colombia. And Felipe has extensive work and academic experience in peace building, human rights, citizen security, and civic participation. So, Felipe, I'm happy to send you the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Ana Paula, for, for this amazing introduction. And if Mohammed was worried about the lack of color in his presentation after Nina's one, I'm more worried, but uh, I will try to, to tell a bit and to, and to try to put faces or try to explain from a more local context what means the contract killings. Um, I would like to focus also now in the context of Colombia and how these contract killings are happening, but also in the local communities' responses that we have been able to identify in the implementation of one of the key projects we are doing in the country. So I would like to, to tell a bit of the of the context of Colombia. We saw Nina, Nina show with how Americas and how specifically Colombia is one of the of the main places where contract killings are happening or killings related to organized crime. Yeah. In, in accordance to the to the assassination witness and the, and the global monitor. And I would like to highlight some data that I think are quite impressive. For those of you who don't know, Colombia signed a peace agreement with FARC-EP. FARC-EP was the main guerrilla group that used to be in the country in 2016. But after Signing this peace agreement, we have been seeing how the killings of social leaders, human rights defenders, and former combatants have been rising in the country. So just for you to have an idea of it, 1,423 people, social leaders, and human rights defenders have been killed in Colombia since 2016, when the peace agreement was signed. Just in this year, just in to, uh, 2022, 137 social leaders and human rights defenders have been killed in my country. And another specific uh, type of killings have been taking place, which is the killings of uh, the peace agreement uh, signators, or we call it firmantes, the people who actually demobilized and decide to agree to the peace agreement, and they were five members or former FARC members who has been killed in the countries. 337 FARC paying former combatants killed since 2016. Those numbers have been actually considered by the verification missions of the, of the United Nations. And just this year, 34 uh, FARC paying former combatants have been killed. This is important because just to make some history, after uh, the end of the 80s in Colombia, FARC also signed another peace agreement and some people uh, from the more political side of FARC demobilized and created a political party named Unión Patriotica or the UP. And every, every one of them, one by one, were killed during the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, so probably this is kind of a, 
and a layer that we cannot repeat the history. So the the context is quite complicated. And in this picture, I'm not speaking and I'm not talking about uh, the the environmental leaders. In different rankings and different news, Colombia has been considered the worst place to be an, envir an environmental leader. So these three uh, categories, uh, human rights defenders, social leaders, former combatants and environmental uh, activists are on the spot and are being uh, literally targeted uh, by organized crime. Why are they being killed is a quite tricky question, uh, but mainly after Farc-Pain signed the peace agreement, different criminal groups are trying to consolidate criminal governance in the areas or the regions of the country where Farc left. So this consolidation of criminal governance, it's been very violent. And one of the best strategies that criminal groups have to actually consolidate criminal governance is to silence communities. And the best way to silence communities is to silence their leaders. So if you kill the leader, you send a message to the community about who is in charge, who has the power, who can control this. And also they have been targeting specific, specifically those leaders uh, who are promoting peace agreement measures, for example, uh, crop substitution and civic participation. So the leaders who are promoting crop substitutions in places where are full of coca crops and cocaine production are being killed or are, are being threatened in order to stop them uh, being vocal and being open about different ways or different uh, economies. How does it operate? They do not necessarily kill them directly. They begin threatening them. They also do contract killings. And, and if someone is being too vocal or too open about an issue, about a topic, about the presence of a criminal organization, they target them to go and kill them. But also, they're doing a lot of disappearances. So they're not leaving the body, but they're just extracting the people from the community and disappearance uh, or making a disappearance um, on them. And right now, and I heard that a couple of months ago in Tumaco. Tumaco is a municipality located south of the country in the border with Ecuador. It's a port city. And one of the cities or, or is the municipality with more croca, uh, coca crops in the country because the social leaders and the human rights defenders are on the spot because they're being killed and threatened. Right now, they're not threatening them. They're looking into their family members. So I go and I look and I threaten your wife, your son, your brother, whoever is not the social leader, but whoever is next or close to the social leader in order to make the social leader, the human rights defenders, to stop speaking, to lower their voice, to lower their visibility, and actually, they're promoting uh, enforced displacements. So if I if I will resume what I've just mentioned, I will say that the peace agreement did not stop violence in the country due to the persistence of other criminal actors. And these criminal actors are both disputing territories among themselves, but they're also targeting community members and mainly human rights defenders and social leaders in order to consolidate their criminal governance. How do we know this? Uh, how have we built uh, this information? We're implementing a project in the country named Resilient Communities. It's a project to support civic security in regions affected by the armed conflict. So the project think or considers that because we signed peace, we should we also should shift the paradigm towards security to that municipalities. And we should stop thinking from a national security perspective where we need to win the war against an internal enemy and start paying attention to the most uh, challenging issues in terms of security that are taking place in the communities. In the framework of this project, we conducted 26 resilience dialogues. The resilience dialogues is a methodology developed by the GI and implemented in several parts of the world in order to identify which one are the key citizen security challenges and also trying to promote or to identify or to co-design community responses to them. So in these dialogues, we have been able to put together in the same table local institutions, meaning uh, 
municipalities, uh, major offices, but also local representative of the general attorney office. Also, we have invited into these dialogues to the police, the local police. In Colombia, the police is a national entity, but you have local representation of it. So we have invited police and we have sit down in the same table, civic society organizations, which normally do not have a say or do not have an opinion on security issues due to this idea of conflict, where first, you are in extremely risk if you speak. And second, because this is a national security issue, you are not allowed to come and to give your opinion. We are trying to achieve that and we are creating safe places, safe, safe, uh, yeah, safe places for them to speak and to actually being open about which one are in their considerations the main citizen security issues. Clearly, the threatening and the killings of social leaders have been in the in the focus on the of the of the challenges identified by communities. But also several proposals to face this type of violence were built into these resilience dialogues. And I want to, to share with you today some of those community responses and also to send a message that there is hope and there are things that have been created from the local scenarios, from the local communities that we could implement in order to face contract killings and threatenings. I would like to, to invite you to, to see that face. Uh, that face is Edgar Quintero. Edgar Quintero was one of the participants in our dialogues. We met him this year in May, and probably two weeks after we held the resilience dialogue in Santander de Quilichao, which was his municipality, he was killed. He was killed by a criminal group for being vocal and for being open. Edgar was the leader that promoted uh, the comeback of people that were previously enforced this place. Uh, sorry, I don't know if it's correct to say that, but people who has been displaced uh, by the conflict. So after certain years, he was promoting the return of the community to their urban area. And that day in May, I have the chance to have lunch with Edgar. And Edgar told me the phrase that you can read on your left. Well, in my left, probably on your left too. We are tired of leaving our territories. Leaving our, ter our communities is worse than being killed. We need to be as visible as possible. And I think this is the milestone or the key point to start speaking about what can we do. How we can build responses that actually put and position the voices of local communities in the middle of it. And I will present and I will briefly comment into state-centered responses and community-centered responses. So from the state responses, uh, we need to do a participatory review of the protection rules. Most of the people who have been uh, in this table says there are protection rules that Colombia government have designed, but the measures that include these protection rules do not work. And I will give or I will provide a very specific example. Some of the protection routes includes giving the social leader who has been threatened a cell phone. But those leaders live and work in areas where there is no cell phone connectivity. And the people who have designed the protection routes in the national level sit down in a desk in Bogota, do not consider this type of things. So what communities are saying is we need to sit down with the people who is creating the policy and explain what works and what doesn't. And we need a participatory review of the existing protection rules. The second uh, component will be a territorialization of the protection rules. Right now, to achieve a protection measure, you need to wait until a national committee that sit down some meets in Bogota every three months, sit down to discuss your case. In the process between or, or while well, you receive a threat and your protection um, request is actually discussed can take at least six or seven months. Most of the people is being killed while that happens or while that takes place. 
So we need to bring those committees down to the territory, down to the local communities to actually respond in a more fast way. In the same logic, they said we need complementary measures from local governments. We cannot wait until the national government provides a protection mechanism. Sometimes we need some money just for being able to take a bus and to move from one city to another until things cool down and we're able to return. Sometimes we need to have a direct channel to call in the local administration to say, this is taking place in my community. I need police support right now. This is missing right now in the protection routes in Colombia. And finally, and which I think is one of the most innovative measures, is the collective reports uh, mechanisms. This is when a leader is threatened or when a leader receives an attack, how the whole organization or the whole community can present the report, not the person or not one person. Because if you go and report the threatening, you will be on the spot as well. So how can we create collective reports? And because I'm running out of time, I will go with the community-centered responses, which first consider the strengthening of Guardias Indígenas and Guardias Cimarronas. This is a Guardia Indígena and this is a Guardia Cimarrona. Those are ancestral uh, authorities that are part of indigenous and black communities that live in our territories uh, that normally are or wear this type of uh, bastones of sticks, and these are their weapons. So they're pacific resistance mechanism that oppose to criminal groups. And by being a lot of them, they can go and they could create protection measures. So uh, the idea of strengthening is providing them technical capacity in terms of human rights, but also in terms of um, judicial aspects of their work but also in very technical aspects like having boots, having sticks, or having radios to communicate themselves, and having a direct channel with the local uh, administration in order to coordinate measures with the police. Also strengthening the civil society organization to visibilize the, the role rather than individual roles. So right now, a criminal group focus on the leader because the leader is the one who is visible. Communities believe that if we're strengthening the civic society organization, the whole organization will be visible, not only the leader. It will be more difficult to go and kill all of them. Define urgent measures within communities in case of threats or failed attacks. Moving and hiding person. They consider that if they have a network, they could easily and very fast move people when they receive a threat or their attacks. And this is a very, very specific way to save life. In, in case of urgent cases. And finally, and this is for Edgar, and this is what Erga, Edgar believe, how to be civilized, be civilized and communicate the roles of leaders. Edgar told me there are a lot of youth people in my community that right now is working on the cocaine production business. They're having money, they're having motorbikes, and they're having weapons. And one of them is the one who is going to go and kill me. If communities doesn't or do not understand who is a social leader and why is the role of social leader and why it's important to have a social leader to act as the voice of their communities, it's going to be easier that someone from within your community with an incentive based on the legal economies will go and kill you. So that's why he said we need to be as visible as possible. I need or I had to rush, but I hope uh, I was clear and I will be here to answer any questions that you may have. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much, Felipe. Thank you for proposing so many interesting solutions and responses that we can support communities in doing. So um, I move to the to questions and answers session so we can, because I feel there, there are some questions in the chat that um, the audience is willing to get your answers on. So I think first to Nina, there was a question around whether there, there are plans to include a study um, of contract killings in the Caribbean region. And to Felipe, uh, if you find difference between motives for contract killings in the rural areas in comparison to more urban centers and cities. And then another question as well as to what, what is the biggest challenging 
uh, yeah, what is the biggest challenge in changing the way of citizen security beyond the national security paradigm? And I think for Mohammed, what, there was a question around if you could speak on the hegemonic masculinity or toxic masculinity with respect to contract killings, perhaps in the context of motorcycle clubs. So maybe first Nina, then Mohammed, then Felipe, in the order that you spoke. Thank you, Anna. Um, yes, so the global database does cover any country that is mentioned in global and regional news. So that is includes the Caribbean, Caribbean countries. Um, for the um, for the data from 2019, 2020, um, in terms of the national um, database where we have countries included national um, um, news sources, um, we didn't include a Caribbean country specifically, but um, we're publishing um, the 2021 data in December, which I forgot to mention during my presentation, um, in December this year. Um, and we are actually including data for Haiti. So there we consulted national sources. Um, we're hoping to, to um, include more countries, obviously in the future, it's a matter of capacity to include more countries in the future where you can also consult national sources, um, including Caribbean. If you have any suggestions, please get in touch um, if you're working on the subject. Um, yeah, the, the, the database is updated annually. So it's a continuous data collection uh, program. Thank you. So you go now, Um. Yes, you can go. Or it was Mohammed first. You can choose. You go ahead, Philippe. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're ready. I'm you're ready to go. <laughs> I got. I, I got confused. In your... No, go ahead, well, Philippe. Please. About about the question, if there are difference, or if I consider there are difference uh, in the motive, considering rural settings and urban settings i will say yes and no so yes because at the end you have social leaders and human rights defenders in both the scenarios the main difference is that killing someone in the rural area will be way easier than killing them in the urban area because your rural areas in colombia are, have distance from are, yeah like very difficult connectivity, they're very rural, very in the bush, very in the mountains, and it's not so easy to protect or to or, or for the police to get there or for the army to be there. So in the motive, no, but in the way how the killing happens, yes, will be much more easier in the rural areas. The main difference in the motive that I see is that in urban areas where having or we've received much more killings that are related in the dispute or, or in, the, in the yeah i will hope to say that let's think as a way to make fulfill contracts so in urban areas you have much more killings that are related with more criminal type of stuff in the rural areas the killings are more i want to silence you i want to take control i want to show power on you as a community in their urban areas is more person to person. So you did not fulfill that or you uh, make a claim or a report against me. So I will go and kill it. In the rural areas, more message to the broader community. And there was another question, Anna, but I, I don't recall which one was that. Um, yeah, I can, it was, uh, if you, uh, which yeah. is the biggest challenge in changing the way of citizen security beyond the national security program. I can come also on the motive side, because it's something that we are facing as well in the assassination witness program. And yeah, so and if you can answer, please, the second question, yes. and then I pass on to Mohammed. It will be trust. The, the, the biggest challenge is how to build trust, how how we make that civil society organization trust each other. How can we promote that civil society organization trust municipalities? How can we make that civil society organization trust into the local police? And the other way around, because the legacy of the conflict has made that also local institutions and also the local police forces believe that a community that lives under criminal governance is in some way related or supporting of the criminal actor. And that's not true. They just live under their control. So everyone distrusts the other. So it's very difficult to make them sit them together, being open 
and try to identify common problematics and also co-design responses. And this, putting all the stakeholders into the same table to co-design is key in order to actually achieve citizen security. So we need to kind of pass the page of, of the legacy of the conflict and start again building a new paradigm that needs to start in building trust. And from the Colombia team of the GI, we consider that supporting resilience can be the way or the road to achieve that. Thank you, Felipe Mohammed. In response to the question about hegemonic masculinity and toxic masculinity, yeah, it's a very prevalent dominating traits and one that is woven into the fabric of the DNA of outlaw biker groups. And they don't make uh, this, you know, an understanding of, of masculinity um, something that's clandestine or hidden. It's very apparent and it's very in your face. And it is probably one of the things that's quite synonymous to TV shows that, that kind of depict them and portray them. Um, in some cases, the TV shows are sensationalized and salacious in, the, in, in their kind of aspects, but the biker men that I've spoken to in the UK have been very forthcoming and been very frank about the way that they view themselves as men. So for the most part, their understanding of daily life is contingent and dependent upon this thing called brother, brotherhood. And the brotherhood is essentially this oneness and this weeness, this universalism, um, which is largely male fixated and male oriented. Um, for the most part, their masculine traits traverses across the way they go about mainstream values in society, um, ethics. There's very minimal involvement of women in their day-to-day -day living. Um, some have described their women as old ladies, not in terms of age, but in terms of the kind of traditional uh, elements that are often associated with family, especially within working class culture and the position of women within the household and within the family dynamics. Um, having said that, I think within the context of what I've investigated for the most part, um, and this would this will probably be synonymous to what Anna and Nina have found in their research and in their work, as well as Felipe in Colombia, what we are essentially dealing with is male-on-male -male violence for the most part. Uh, th there are probably some cases of females being victims or in some cases females also being offenders or, or, or co-conspirating, but for the most part, the, the work that I've been able to do here in the UK is male-on-male -male violence. And, that the masculine element, yeah, it is a big deal for them, but they don't necessarily, um, they're, they're, very, they're very strategic. They're able to differentiate the business element of what they do, the commercial aspect of what they do, and the violence that they often employ so as to be able to um, uphold what they have um, as an organization and what they need to do in order to progress the organization. But you are right to say that hegemonic masculinity and even toxic masculinity to a certain extent is quite prevalent within the biker underworld. Having said that, one, one, one of the things that I found interesting was I was only ever able to speak to one female who was in a long-term relationship with a, a biker. And for the most part, she, she said to me that they don't really have the kind of conventional relationships in the sense that they... Um, date for a while then they get engaged and they get married right they, they tend to be long-term relationships but they don't really have the legal side of things the marriage side of things and she was able to um well, what i was able to get from her for the most part was there's this kind of acceptance from her that you know she knows her position and she knows her place and when i did allude to the fact that some of the things that she was saying was was quite outdated and um, um very traditional or ultra traditional she was completely accepting about about her position and i think that kind of reinforces what i mentioned at the beginning which is that they're very forthcoming with their masculine approach um on, a, on an overall level thank you very much mohammed and also bringing the gender perspective on in, in the research and contract killings 
So I think we had a very fruitful discussion today. Um, we have also some propositions to the future as the need to improve the data collection, the need for state responses in this regard as well in providing data, the need to improve collaboration between civil society as well as with the academia that can um, promote a more symbiotic uh, work on this, the need principally to include the community and the community voice in the policy making and, and the need to continue to support and enhance um, supporting communities in creating and building community resilience. Um, so I, I feel that there are some actions proposed to the state, to state institutions, to academia, to civil society. And then, yeah, I think we need to all to work together towards this, um, to combating and, and, and pushing back against this phenomenon that has caused so many lives across the globe and, and left uh, afraid of victims. So um, yeah, we continue to work and we are happy to address any further questions. If you have, send us an email to the GI team, to Dr. Mohammed Haman, and we are happy to, to, to answer your questions and, and continue working on this. Thank you very much, Nina, Felipe, Mohammed. It was a pleasure to be part of this discussion today. I hope you all continue having a good OC24. Thank you for the attendees, most of all. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24-hour conference on global organized crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.